friends. Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. A while back, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Tim Otto. Tim is an author, a speaker, and a co-pastor of Church of the Sojourner, which is a live-in community in San Francisco's Mission District. So Tim and I sat down for a while and talked about what it is like for him to live in that sort of community, the quirks of it, the beauty of it, and had a really great conversation. One thing that didn't get captured on the mic, which we were talking about afterwards that I think you should probably hear. I was telling him that I just listened to a news piece on the Jonestown massacre on my way to interview him. And so if my questions seemed a little cult heavy, then I apologize. And he was then made this point that you hear a lot in the news about weird communities that end up hurting or killing people, but you don't often hear in the news how loneliness can hurt and even kill people through addictions, through suicide, through the pain that we feel when we feel alone. And that's really what's at the heart of Tim and I's conversation is this journey that he has of community, of refusing to be alone and refusing to let others be alone. So check it out. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, So the interview portion of the podcast explores the things that have drawn people into better stories, better ways of living. And uh, what's uh, what do you want to explore? What do you want to unpack today? Well, you were asking me what I'm passionate about. And I would say that I've made my life about church community. Um, I think in some ways it's kind of a performance art. It's unscripted. You show up with your whole life and do this play with some other people. And I've never, I've written books about different topics, but I've never thought intentionally about intentional church community. So (laughs) I was interested to do this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Can you explain to folks maybe what you mean by intentional church community and specifically what it looks like for you and the place that you're in? Yeah, definitely. Um, In some ways, it kind of depends on who I'm talking to. Like um, in, in San Francisco, it costs so much to live here that a lot of people live together. And so if 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 I say that I'm part of a Christian commune, they're just like, oh, cool. I mean, everybody does that, right? And so I usually say that I'm part of a, a church community, and that raises some eyebrows sometimes. And then when I'm with my Christian friends, sometimes I feel like church and community get so overused that I'll, I'll, I'll throw in the word commune just to mess with them. And so... Uh, basically, yeah, we, we try and live together. There's about 25 of us, I guess, that live in four very large houses. And uh, we share meals together. Uh, we, we say that we share money, space, and time to kind of make it real. And then we're trying to be the church, meaning that we're trying to live close enough to each other to really know each other and hopefully use our gifts from each other and receive the gifts that other people have to offer as well. Nice. I was going to ask you, uh, is it a commune? Do you call it a commune? So you do use the language of commune occasionally? <laughs> not seriously. Okay. Um, but, you know, commune's not a bad word. I mean, you know, commune, communion, all things in common. Uh, you know, there's some things we don't share, toothbrushes, spouses. <laughs> but, you know, in, in general, we try and uh, to share our lives and share our goods. Nice. Those are some healthy boundaries that I can appreciate. (laughs) You said you share time, money, resources. So 
just out of curiosity, how does that, that work? That sounds like, you know, a lot of things to organize. Do you have a communal pool of money and resources or what's that look like? Yeah. Yeah. We, we agonized a long time to figure out how to do it because there are some communities that do just like have a central banking account and there's a ton of accounting. They have to hire somebody. And so basically what we said was that we were going to pay basic expenses, meaning rent, food, transportation, healthcare. Then we each keep 400 bucks to do whatever we want to with. And then whatever is left beyond that, we decide together what to do with it. And over the years, this has meant that we've been able to give a ton of money away and support some really good causes. Um, we've been able to put certain people on staff among us to, to help with the community. We support missionaries. We kind of do the, the normal things that church does. So that's the money piece. Space, we share houses. I already talked about that a little bit. And th the interesting thing is from the outside, I think people are most curious about those two things. Mm -hmm. But actually the hardest thing to share is time. Mm -hmm. Just because everybody's so busy, we're all running around frantically doing a million different things. And so part of what we do to combat that is we have we actually have five meals together a week that we share two two meals as a whole community and then three meals just in households and we say that our our most important meeting is dinner and that's where we just catch up with each other and check in and hopefully you know encourage each other and and do those kinds of things and so yeah it's really that time piece that's challenging mm, that's really interesting I'm curious, what's uh, led you personally to decide to join this sort of intentional community? What in life made you say, I want to go live with 20 people and commit my resources and time to these folks? Yeah, I grew up in uh, a really functional, good family, and we were uh, conservative evangelicals. And it seemed like Christianity kind of boiled down to going to church on Sunday morning, having a daily personal devotional time, and then not drinking or having premarital sex. And um, I, I, I grew up in this little town that's been in the news recently, Orville. It has that huge dam. And kind of the thing to do in Orville was to uh, uh, drive up to the dam, drink beers, and make out. And so, as I told people, you know, go to church, do daily devotions, and don't uh, drink or make out, uh, it seemed like I was sharing bad news. <laughs> there, just, there just wasn't enough there. And so I ran into these people um, that I felt like they were living this really adventuresome Christianity, that it wasn't just kind of a personal piety, but it was something that, that affected their whole life. It affected how they thought about politics. It affected how they used their money. It affected what kinds of jobs they took. It was this kind of 24-7 um, kingdom adventure. Uh, and so that was really attractive to me. And in my early 20s, I'd been a humanities major. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But these friends of mine and some mentors of mine were moving in together in San Francisco. And I thought, wow, that that would be an interesting life. And so I 
I joined when I was 24, and I've been here for 28 years now. It's amazing. It's a, it's a serious commitment. Then the question that kind of naturally comes out of that in my mind is, uh, what has that time and that proximity to people done in and to you? How has it sort of, in good ways and bad, uh, shaped you? Yeah. Um, well, uh, one way of talking about it is is that when I was here very early on, I remember one of the talks that one of the pastors gave. John, uh, his name was John, and he he was this very intellectual guy, Oxford educated. And one night he showed up to our Bible study and said, "Last night God spoke to me, and God said words, and I want to tell you what He said." And we were all kind of, you know, looking at each other like, ooh, this is getting a little weird. Uh, but then he said, um, God said to me, John, um, your deepest desire is not to be admired, uh, but to be loved. And that that really struck me because growing up, I had felt like if people really knew who I was, people wouldn't love me. And so I kind of just went for the substitute that our culture offers, which is admiration. And so I tried to achieve in many of the usual ways, and, you know, failed at certain <laughs> ones of them. But nevertheless, that was my path. And and so what he said really struck me. and And I just thought, you know, living here, I'm finding myself well-loved. And that, you know, that's like what we all yearn for, right? People who really know me, they know me, and yet they seem to care for me. And so that, that was huge. I mean, that was just intoxicating. But then also, as I, as I tried to respond with love, I realized, wow, this is, this is where joy is found. I mean, I love loving. Um, and so I think ultimately it was this idea of learning the art of love together. And, you know, I think almost like romantic love, you, you kind of expect love to be something that just happens and you find the right person and all is bliss. Bliss ensues. <laughs> but, you know, after 28 years in community, I realized it really is an art in the sense that it's something you've got to work at and you and it takes a, a lot of labor and there's a lot of pain in it. Um, but I still think it's the art I want to learn. Did you have, comparing it to that romantic metaphor, did you have like a honeymoon phase where everything seemed kind of perfect and utopian? Or was it just getting in real fast and realizing, nope, these are real people? <clears throat> there was a honeymoon phase. Uh, although even early on, um, there were definitely some struggles. I mean, um, I had kind of had this idea of myself as someone who cares for the poor. And so I would do service projects and try and, you know, develop this image of myself as someone who cares. But then moving into the community, we had some people who were poor in different ways. And living with them, I realized that I mostly loved the image of me loving the poor. 
rather than loving actual poor people. And so right away I was confronted with who I am or, yeah, and, you know, immediately there was that very concrete difficulty as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. You know, I haven't lived in an intentional community like this, but I've lived with a spouse for seven years, and the pretenses and the masks we put on sort of uh, become transparent pretty quickly uh, around people. Were there are there other ways that you experienced that? What was that like for you to sort of uh, see those projections or those images that you were putting up for people kind of be seen through? Is that an appropriate way of saying it for your experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, one way of talking about it is that, you know, it really was very hard on that whole desperation for admiration, right? Like, there are certain contexts where, you know, like, I I have written some things, and so I'll go into a context where we're doing a book signing or whatever, and, you know, these are fans. Um... <laughs> And then I come home and, you know, I'm just Tim. And not only am I Tim, but I haven't cleaned the bathroom like I was supposed to. And, you know, and so there, there isn't that, um, those ego supports that one might want. Um, but there is that, that knowledge that these people actually know me and yet they still care for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think community can be tough that way, of people really see who you are. Uh, how has living in close proximity to people like this in this intentional community made you see others differently? Has it affected how you uh, appreciate the people around you and how you see them? I mean, I think especially being single, it's it's really kind of like a graduate course in human nature, which I really appreciate. I, I mean, I I think it's it's almost like being really close to an ecology of human relationships, and so you see, you learn more about how we're actually constructed, like like very basic things like. Of course, I don't think infidelity is a good thing, but, um, you know, we had a, an affair happen here in the community, and so that happened eight years ago. So I've had eight years now of seeing kind of the damage that that did in, in all kinds of different ways. Um, and so I feel like I, I kind of understand at a more visceral level. Um, the effects of something like that. Yeah, I mean, almost by nature, it sounds like you're placing yourself closer to sort of the impact zone of people for better or for worse. Yep. So if it's, yeah. a, you know, an explosion of chaos, then you're there for that. But if it's the times where we're beautiful and capable of creativity and healing, all that sort of stuff, you get to be there for that, too. Yeah, and it's it's probably important not to minimize the... Uh, reality of living in the impact zone. In other words, we we have a covenant where we say, um, you know, in making this commitment, I know that you're going to sin against me. Um, and so I commit to trying to forgive that. 
And of course, I will sin against you. And I ask that you try and forgive me. And so, you know, to the extent that we manage to hang it together, it's it's because of a commitment to forgiveness. Whenever I find someone particularly irritating or hard to live with, which I imagine has to happen in close proximity to folks, the, what can be helpful for me is to think, you know, what am I learning through this? How is this person my teacher in this moment? Yeah. Has that been the case for you? Do you do you see the, the people you're living with as your teacher? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I work part-time as an RN, and, um, you know, I remember one preceptor of mine saying, you know, that difficult patient is your Buddha, <laughs> right? <laughs> that... Uh, if someone's getting on your nerves, uh, it means there's something in you uh, that you need to look at. And that's certainly the case in community. I mean, that the whole conflict thing as being the place where you learn. But then another thing we say is uh, love the person down the hall. And it's strange. I feel like we had a pastor. It seemed like that's the sermon he preached every week. <laughs> and every week it was a revelation. <laughs> like, really? I have to love that person. Um, but I, I think it, you know, that person that you struggle to love, I think that's the most interesting person to ask, you know, what, what is it in me? What am I seeing in that person that reminds me of myself? Mm. You know, uh, what what is it in me that makes it difficult to love? You know, for me, it can be things like self-importance or pride, or um, and and uh, you know, another interesting question is why do I have difficulty receiving that person's love sometimes? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the difficult people are the ones we need to pay the most attention to. Yeah. That's huge to me that you, yeah, you reflect it back on yourself as opposed to, I have a tendency to just put it on that person and say, well, you got some flaws and I'm, you know, I'm fine, but it's all on you. Sure. But yeah, that it, it really does reflect back and say something about our own self-image and our self-understanding and sure. identity. One of the questions that comes up in mind as well, just naturally is, boundaries in this mm -hmm. sort of environment mm -hmm. what does that look like for you to try to i mean you're intentionally blurring some boundaries but i imagine you also need to maintain and keep some healthy boundaries what's that look like mm -hmm. yeah um well one of the the pop psychology words that i think has been really important to us is differentiation and that's the whole thing of you know, somebody can be having their own drama, and and when we live such interconnected lives, it's very tempting to kind of, like, jump into the drama with them. And so part of what we've had to learn is really those internal boundaries of saying, you know, that person is choosing to be angry, that person is choosing to be fearful, whatever, that's interesting. I don't necessarily need to have that same emotion. In fact, 
you know, what do I think about this? How do I respond to this? And then how do I relate in a mature way um, to that person who's having that experience? And so it's really those kind of internal psychological boundaries that I think have proved absolutely crucial. Do you ever sort of, are you ever able to step out of your context kind of mentally or physically for a minute and just think to yourself, this is weird in good ways mm. and in bad. Mm-hmm. Does that ever hit you? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, that is, I think one of the intellectual questions of my life of just, you know, you read a book like Ephesians and there's this depiction of, you know, people laying down their lives for each other and loving each other. And it just seems like, you know, church as we usually experience it doesn't really often approach that. And so we're trying to do this weird thing. And it's it's so marginal and it's so small. You know, I go to... Uh, Giants ball game, and there's 45,000 people showing up, and we struggle to gather up 30, you know. Um, and so I wonder, are we just crazy? Um, I think part of what kind of keeps me going is, and is hard at the same time, is that if you were to live among us, you would realize that this is basically a group home <laughs> in the sense that. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I have an addiction that jumps on me every once in a while. Um, I, I live with folks who have pretty significant mental health issues. I live with a widow who's 74. I live with another guy who's, uh, 76 and used heroin for like 40 years. And, and so, I feel like this is a place for a lot of vulnerable people who end up being part of a relatively functional family. And I think it's really good for them. Day to day, I think there's enough good happening that I, I'm i encouraged to continue on. Yeah, well, from the outside looking in, it seems like you're choosing sort of depth over quantity of mm. relationships. Mm. Um, you mentioned Buddha earlier. I heard it said recently that one of the Buddhas at some point said something along the lines of if you want to strike water, dig one deep well and not five mm. shallow ones. Mm. And it seems like you're digging a very deep well of community mm. and relationships, uh, which is weird, but in a in a good way or in a way that, you know, is pretty countercultural or, or uncommon mm. in, in our world. Yeah, I hope that's right. I mean, who knows? I... <laughs> uh, in a church context I was working in before, we talked about loneliness. And I had mm. someone ask me afterwards, and we talked about it in the context of literally just being alone or living alone or mm. um, potentially singleness. And they came to me and said, I'm in a family, but I feel alone mm-hmm. in my family. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by that. And you obviously are around people you know, quite often you're living in close proximity to people is can you and do you still feel lonely and how do you 
push against that or open yourself up to the point that you uh, really fight that loneliness in community. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. One time I was complaining about being single and a friend of mine who was in a very difficult patch in her marriage said, yeah, that that sounds bad, but laying next to the person that uh, I resent and despise, that's lonely. And I thought, yeah, that sounds really awful. You're right. And 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 so... You know, sometimes community can be the hardest place, right? Like, you can be in your room, and you can hear people in the living room laughing, and and your thought is, why wasn't I invited? You know, it, it can almost accentuate it. Do you find yourself as a community, and you personally having to guard against some of those, uh, I don't like to use the word, but kind of cultish qualities, you know, groupthink mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. idolizing a leader, those sort of things? Yes, um, my cousin, uh, it's kind of funny, it, this is a podcast so you can't see this, but she would take her arm and kind of use it like a gauge, like, and on certain statements she'd like swing her arm over indicating the cultometer, like that, <laughs> that's cultometer worthy, um, and, and so we, we had kind of a community that um, we were very close to that we saw implode. And so as a result of that, we took a lot of measures to try and stay healthy. And one of those is, is that we're in relationship with some other churches, a, a local Presbyterian church here, and then some church communities that are somewhat like us. And every three years, we invite them to come and interview everybody in the community. And then they come back and they give us a report of like, here's where you're getting a little weird. <laughs> Here are ways that you're doing well. And and any community member can say, hey, I want that to happen right now. Like I'm concerned right now. That needs to happen. And so that's one way. But But we've built in, you know, people who accompany us in all kinds of ways that hopefully are kind of a safeguard to that. And then, you know, we try and be careful about our structures so that we always have group leadership and it's never just one person and that we operate by consensus. And so so we try and have a lot of safeguards against going in unhealthy ways. Yeah, those sound like some healthy boundaries, not just for a community, but for some people. In fact, I should have someone interview me occasionally to make sure that I'm not <laughs> slipping into unhealthiness. Well, great. Uh, anything else that I've missed? Any Anything that is worth sort of unpacking and bringing to the surface as you reflect on your time in intentional community? I really love that metaphor of love as an art and I'm kind of a jack of all trades and dabble in a lot of stuff, and I'm not particularly good at any one thing. Um, but as a little kid, I I remember being well loved by somebody, and I just had that feeling like I'd like to grow up to be someone who loves well, and. I think this is one context where uh, I can really w- 
work on that. And of course, so much of the work is receiving God's love, right? That it's not something that I have, but merely something that God gives me and I kind of pass along. Like, you know, the kid who says, hey, uh, mom, can I get you a gift? And mom gives him five bucks or whatever. But um, still, uh, I think that's worth making a life about. And I, I hope that that's what community is at its best. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's probably a good place to, to wrap up. If folks want to hear more from you, uh, are there places or things they should look for? Books, blogs, websites? Yeah, well, um, the community website is churchofthesojourners.org. And so you can check us out. We're in San Francisco. We actually offer uh, an internship that's a year long and would love to talk with you if, if anyone has interest in that. And then I have a website called Oriented to Faith, which is uh, about a book I wrote on sexuality. And so that's another place where you can see some of what I've written. Great. And this is the worst reason to, to join an intentional community, but you're around some of the best burritos in the country. So if oh, there's yeah. people out here, then, you know. Yeah, killer burritos. I, I have a standing invite to friends that if you visit me, I'll buy you a burrito. And Although I think you bought me a burrito, so. I think you bought the burrito and I bought the next one. So, yeah, I think think I was initiated with a burrito in the the Mission District. Sweet. Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting. This has been really excellent. And uh, folks at home, if you want to check out more from Tim, uh, check out the websites that he talked about. All right. We'll catch you next time.